You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Welcome to Radiotherapy. The sun is peeking its way through the clouds, and it's one of those typical Melbourne autumnal mornings, just perfect for cuddling up to a steaming cup of tea, or your partner, or a furry pet, and spending the next hour having us join you in the kitchen, in the bedroom, or, I don't know, in the car seat, I guess. First up, we will be chatting with two experts in the field of alcohol. Dr. Pat is a humble expert uh, in uh, drug and alcohol services, working at a very large metropolitan hospital, which is next to a park with a helipad and starting with letter A. Uh, Prof. Petra Stager is from the School of Psychology at Deakin University and Deputy Director of the Centre for Drug Use, Addictive and Antisocial Behaviour, or CEDA, which conjures up an image of a nice kind of tree with shade you can rest under. Her team has been trialling an app which helps people stick to their goal of drinking less, which is always a good thing. They are calling it a therapist in a pocket, kind of like a tiny little shrink, and we are very keen to hear about it. And we're hanging on to our mobile phones for our next segment too. Who would have thought way back in the early 2000s, Kentis, who would have thought when multimedia messaging, MMS, first came out, that there would be a thing called sexting? And yet there is, and it is a phenomenon phenomenon that we are still in the midst of trying to understand. Try and say that word on a Sunday morning. We, What are the motivations and behavioural patterns of young people who sext? And what sort of implications does that have for policy, education, and how we relate to each other as human beings? I'm looking at other people on the panel here. Research fellow and Myrtle project manager from the School of Psychiatry at Deakin University. It is Deakin University Day here today. Liz Clancy will be in to tell us what her research has uncovered. And I'll let you into a secret. The results about sexting are really, really going to surprise you. They surprise me. And if that ain't enough brain power, we will be joined by nurse EpiPen and Dr G-Spot, two highly respected health professionals who don't mind harming their careers by appearing alongside me, Dr Malpractice, for a morning of Medicine, music, and maladroit alliterations. Here for the next hour on Radiotherapy. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. I've got to say thank you uh, to Kentus Maximus, our uh, erstwhile producer and lectures on uh, multimedia so <laughs> that reference was uh, very appropriate good morning dr g-spot good morning mal how are you going i'm very very well and good morning nurse EpiPen. morning you're already still doing your research here no, i am <laughs> downloading my alcohol app ah. <laughs> because i had a few drinks last night and ah. i need to know if i'm over and do <laughs> and have you ever thought we're going to get into this later but have you ever thought gee i'd like to just cut down on my alcohol consumption just a bit ever thought that Definitely. I have. I have. Definitely. And then that thought just effervesces and goes away and doesn't get acted upon, but we're going to find out more about that <laughs> later. Hey, this is the time of the year. We're getting close to Good Friday. We're getting close to Easter. And you're going to tell us how to celebrate it. A, a little chemical. <laughs> a little chemical. We a all, little chemical. Do you want me to do that now? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, um, Easter. <laughs> and what comes with Easter? Well, there are and an abundance in yeah. Coles and all the supermarkets at the moment. Chocolate Easter eggs. Oh, yum. 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 So I just <laughs> thought I'd just do a tiny little bit of about chocolate yeah. and I'm not going to go into too much research sure. and analyse the um, journals that have produced some of these uh, figures. Mm-hmm. But um, just one of the things that came out, and I'm hoping I can explain it yeah, yeah. in a simple way. Yeah, yeah. It's um, well, in chocolate we have um, cocoa, yeah. but cocoa has a sp- potent antioxidant yeah. thing about it. So, if we think, I'm trying to explain antioxidants. So, if we think about um, molecules in our cells, um, antioxidants are the ones that are, act like a sponge mm-hmm. and they mop up the O2 that's in a toxic form. They mop up the oxidants. Correct. Yeah. So, antioxidants. Anti. You're doing well this morning. And, and if we think about it, if they, those bad um, 
oxygen the oxygen that doesn't dissolve mm. um it's that it can produce rust mm. so we could have rusty cells ah yeah, yeah. oxidation yeah. of the cells correct nice. okay so we've covered that yeah. okay so now <laughs> i'm just going to talk about um the things that uh because chocolate's got an antioxidant effect mm-hmm. particularly the stronger the chocolate the better the oh, um, 95 that's yeah 80 oh, percent high percentage that's yeah. right yeah. that's right so little things i've got seven okay. things that chocolate can help you with Um, Yeah, Journal of Nutrition uh, states that it can possibly low your um, bad cholesterol. Right. So we've got the bad cholesterol. Tick. Tick. Here's a good one for the three of us. Um, Scientists at the Harvard Medical um, School suggest that drinking two cups of hot chocolate a day could keep the brain healthy and reduce memory decline in older patients. Or older people. You're dinking about, you about this? Pardon? this yeah. Yeah. Harvard, Harvard. Harvard okay. Don't argue with that. Okay. Them. <laughs> okay. And two a day. Two a day. Two hot, hot chocolate. Yeah. Okay. Um, third, heart disease. Mm. So the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, can't argue with them, mm. um, says that consuming chocolate could help lower the risk of developing heart disease by one third. Now, I'm not going to analyse the research, no but way. this is what they're saying. And, really it's, <laughs> and it's Easter and we can be generous with some of this stuff. I want to see the paper that okay. says that. I'll, oh, we'll do that. I'll okay. cover that next time. Yeah, It might have something to do with quantity. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Um, stroke. So it kind of makes sense if they're related Canadian, to Canada. Now I'm in Canada. Canada. <laughs> Canadian scientists involved in a big, huge study, 44,000 people, um, said that um, having um, people that ate re- chocolate regularly uh, reduced their um, chances of stroke by 22%. Are you sponsored by the chocolate industry this morning? <laughs> Lint. 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 Yeah. Yum. Anyway, so that's and so that's uh, that's another one. Uh-huh. Fe- get this one: fetal growth and development. No it, way. Yeah, it, uh, it helps with it. Growth it of your so, feet. Yeah. <laughs> this was presented. Now I know why I have to keep getting bigger shoes. shoes. Too much yeah. chocolate. Oh, fetal feet, you silly plonkers. 2016 pregnancy meeting of the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine in Atlanta said that eating 30 grams, so about one ounce, 30 grams of chocolate every day during pregnancy might... like a fun size. ...might benefit (laughs) fetal growth and development. What do you reckon about that one? Might, Might. okay. That's soft. Yeah. (laughs) Athletic performance. Because oh, I had a piece of chocolate before I rode in, so and I was firing. So if the <laughs> Journal of International Society of Sports Nutrition suggests that a little dark chocolate might boost oxygen availability during fitness training. What you do is you put the chocolate at the end of the track and you, <laughs> <laughs> you run towards it. You towards think it's really a motivational yeah. thing, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this is, might not be a, um, a, a benefit, but one of the things about eating sweets, if you have to eat sweets or yeah. something at the end of the evening... Chocolate is much better because it dissolves around your teeth. So if you eat jubes, that's, that's good. It's good to have yeah. chocolate rather than um, oh, jelly sticky. beans and oh, sweetie, yeah. sweet things. Things that stick to your teeth. Yeah, so, okay. so chocolate will wash off your teeth. So if you have to have a little munchy at the end of the okay. evening, go for a chocolate rather than the jubes. Okay. So, yeah. Good advice. Thank so, you. And, and then... Enjoy your chocolate Easter egg because, boy, have they got some good things happening for we, you. We should review some of those papers yeah, later on the show. Yeah, we could do that. I found that quite striking. Yeah. Now, moving from – now, how am I going to do this segue? How do I segue from chocolate to penis um, enlargement? I know. I've got it because when you have a bit of chocolate, you might get a bit bigger and maybe a part of your body, a male part, might get a little bit Two bigger. Misses. That's a big joke. I think it might be that athletic performance that you were referring to, Ooh, EpiPen. Go for it. Yeah. So, so G-Spot. G-Spot, you're going to talk about penile enlargement and there's a yeah. problem. Absolutely. So this is a topic I am fortunate to do quite a bit of research in and a paper came out this past week, it went through The Guardian, that in Papua New Guinea there's an absolute epidemic of guys injecting things into their penis that they shouldn't be and these things include coconut oil, baby oil, silicone and cooking oil. Really? Yes. In an effort to enlarge their penis? Absolutely. It's actually one of the most um, searched terms on Google, how do I make my penis bigger? And uh, things like this will pop up. And what can happen is that they can uh, develop lumpy masses, um, 
like basically granulomas and a granuloma is like a sort of inflammatory kind of exactly yeah. exactly so their penises get lumpy sometimes they even need to have their penis removed entirely can you imagine oh. a man who is looking to enlarge his penis yeah, yeah. actually has to have it removed because he has injected things into it he uh, shouldn't have uh, is there a reason why this has become more prominent this, I think this has always been a bit of a thing. Yeah. Um, I think with the advent of um, internet searches and being able to sort of um, uh, potentially look for a solution yeah, 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 for yeah. your penile concerns has meant that men have taken these things into their own hands and can order things like silicone online to inject themselves. So, so they want bigger frightened. penises, Absolutely. longer. Absolutely, longer and thicker. And thicker. And yeah. what about erectile function? Can that... After oh, they you've can, done these absolutely. things. Absolutely. They can lose the ability to have sex yeah. entirely. So it's, they're just looking at them. It's cosmetic yes, to have absolutely. a nice... So how, how do you combat this? Do you have an advertising campaign? or I mean, how do you... Yeah. Educate people to I mean, not do this. Well, I think it's talking on shows like Triple R. <laughs> you know, guys out there, please don't look in your cupboards for stuff <laughs> to inject into your penis. Please go to a proper doctor if this is what you want to do. Um, but I think it would be about regulation of this industry, particularly advertising, because it is a huge industry and not well regulated. You know, we've done so many shows looking at um, people using um, illegitimate illegitimate um, yeah. websites to get their medical advice. Absolutely. such a problem because, as you mm. rightly say, you can just hop onto the internet, find out Absolutely, whatever you want to find out, yeah. and probably a lot you, of it's going to be wrong. You're probably getting like this industrial-grade silicone instead yeah. of, you know, stuff yeah. that should be injected into a human. So oh, please man, go dear. to a proper doctor. And, and hurt? Ouch. Absolutely. Well, especially when it becomes, you know, all inflamed and, and unhappy. It, yeah, it would be very uncomfortable. Oh, Stick wow. with a small willy, I say. <laughs> it's not the size, it's what you do with it, right? Correct. So, yeah. In fact, uh, as we know, Dr G-Spot is a researcher in this particular area. Excellent. The coefficient of expansion, I was always told. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Indeed, it is three triple R, and joining us in the studio is R. Uh, R is the correct term. Uh, Doctor Pat, do I use your surname, Pat, or should I not announce that? You over can it? if you wish to. Doctor Patrick Tollin, who I've known for about thirty years, um, and uh, Associate Professor Petra Stager. Now, uh, Petra, tell us a bit about yourself. Okay, thank you very much for in introducing me. Um, so. Uh, my name is Petra Steiger. I work in the School of Psychology at Deakin University and I'm a, a, a clinical psychologist and I've worked in the area of addiction for, oh, a couple of decades now. Fair Yep. Oh, OK. Well, that's a long time to be working in, I mean, one area. Yes. It? Yeah, I love it. So later if we get time, I'm going to ask you what actually got you into it because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm intrigued by what people, why people go into their mm. locations. I am too, actually. Yeah, we'll share a conversation on that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Patrico, tell us about yourself. Uh, well, I'm a uh, consultant psychiatrist. I um, have been working in private practice for 16 years up until Friday um, <laughs> and now work at the Alfred Hospital and down in the country in La Trobe and uh, work in addiction for consultation liaison, so uh, looking after people in hospital who have addictive issues such as requiring detoxification or other support. What happened on Friday? I left private practice. <laughs> the, uh, much like Julian Sands left the Ecuadorian <laughs> Embassy, I was carried out <laughs> of my private practice on Friday. Well. And uh, public uh, psychiatry is benefiting, benefiting from that. Mm. Thank yes. you. Terrific. Mm. Now, Petra, you've developed an app which is going to help people like me and <laughs> EpiPen cut down on our alcohol consumption. Tell us about I it. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I give you... Um, I always answer questions with a broader sort of statement before I get to the specifics does drive my children slightly mad but um, if I can just you sure. know uh, do that so the the context of um, apps I guess is that sort of probably over a, close to a decade ago everyone thought okay this is going to be a cost-effective way to you know be able to sort of deliver um, mobile health so that we can um, 
have people who are live in the country or people who can't access services be able to receive some sort of support to um, you know increase um, exercise or improve nutrition etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's taken a while now um, before we've started to see research evaluations of these apps so um, for example we've just recently there's been a large um, review of mental health apps which actually um, were showing to be reasonably effective mm -hmm. given one's not actually going into a, a service mm -hmm. um, that um, except for some of the more significant mental health issues of course and when I say effective I mean like you know reduces some of the symptoms helps people a little bit you know, in terms of mm -hmm. um, lifting mood, reducing mm -hmm. anxiety, etc. But recently, um, our team at Deakin, so led by myself and a group of other people, we've done a review of some of the alcohol and smoking apps, and the news is not as positive, which is interesting. We haven't. Um, we're just putting it together for publication, so I'll certainly pass it on to the viewers um, once it's um, published. But it looks like the apps are not as effective, and I think there's a number of reasons for that and and I think um, we'll be able to talk about that a little bit um, later but one of the things is that I think with addiction you not only have you got the pharmacological aspects of um, withdrawal and tolerance and and the craving etc but also the, the the psychological sort of dependence on on alcohol or drugs so the reason that you sort of reach for alcohol as opposed to talking to a friend or you know sitting down mm -hmm. and and you know doing something else that's not as destructive and so um so what i like to think about now i'm getting to the specifics mm -hmm. you're building the drama yeah i'm well. building <laughs> i'm building the drama um so that's why i think our app called replace it um which we um developed at deacon um deals with obviously doesn't deal with the pharmacological aspects because um that needs detoxification etc and 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 perhaps some pharmacotherapy but it certainly does uh deal with people who perhaps haven't got significant physical dependence but psychological dependence and allows them to develop some psychological strategies de delivered through the app and i think um, some apps are just focusing on self-monitoring, you know, like the mm -hmm. Fitbits, you know, count your drinks, have mm -hmm. a goal, you know, look at your feedback, etc. And that's fine if you don't have a psychological dependence on alcohol, but if, you've, if you do, that's not going to be enough. You know, you you need other strategies to to at five o'clock rather than reach for the mm -hmm. the bottle of Sauvignon Blanc at you know in the fridge. You actually need to have some other immediate psychological strategies that come to your mind, and that's what Replace It does. It replaces that um, you know sort of pharmacological requirement in a sense with some really effective strategies. Right. So, okay. hmm. what sort of strategies do you do you replace it with? Um, so the other nice thing about it is that it allows you to tailor so you can so you get a drop-down box of uh, strategies that have been effective in face-to-face -face therapy so obviously they're not complex and they don't deal with all sorts of complicated trauma or any you know so people with significant trauma backgrounds etc are not going to be able to be helped by an app I mean it's just you know I think that that we we shouldn't have any sort of expectations around those things but if it's for example that you've just got into a habit so um it says things like um if i if i feel like a drink and it's five o'clock um i will instead uh, and then you've got a drop down list of you know i'll go for a walk um i'll you know ring a friend i'll go and do some exercise mm -hmm. i'll do this that you know so the things that you think you can replace it with um, you, you. That's why we call it. Replace it. You, you choose that, and then it prompts you. It says it's five o'clock. Um, you know, and if, if you're feeling like it doesn't say if you're feeling like a drink, but it says it's five o'clock now, and so that would be when you're coming back home for example that might be the time that you've tailored your app for that, and then um, yeah. it'll remind you of oh. your strategies. Terrific. Hmm. I like the sound of that a lot, Petra. Um, I was just wondering, in my clinical practice as yep. a clin psych, I often find that um, that the ne you need to really build motivation mm. first up and because um, people can be quite ambivalent about giving yep. up these substances that have maybe helped them through some really tricky times. And so does your app um, sort of help people? Um, does it keep them motivated? Does it give motivational messages or anything like that? Look at... 
it does, but I think one of the things that I think is an issue, which is why we're seeing um, particularly addiction-type apps as not as effective um, as I think we'd hoped sort of five to ten years ago, is that it's really hard to build motivation in an app. I think mm. you have to really, A, be motivated to pick it up in the first place, yeah. B, then to stick to the sort of strategies and all those things. I mean, I think that one of the things that we do do is we do like a feedback graph so mm-hmm. you can actually see the alcohol consumption reducing. Um, we also have little messages and little smiley faces, etc. You know, well done, you've reached I this like goal, that a lot. and you know all those sorts of things. But mm. ultimately, um, it requires motivation. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, could we start by just um, defining what alcohol addiction is? What, where is it? it? Pat, maybe you'd like to answer that. What is? When do you know that you've got a problem? Um, well, I guess that uh, a lot of the people that I do my work with are people who are drinking very high levels of alcohol uh, and so would be experiencing issues around tolerance to alcohol, so mm. they need more and more to get the same effect um, uh, withdrawal. So once their uh, alcohol is out of their system um, or even if their alcohol levels are falling, they start to experience discomfort and that might be physical symptoms such as sweating and shaking uh, through to anxiety, insomnia, things of that nature. Um, and I guess more and more time using the drug. Um, they're the main features uh, and, and, and that often results in harm occurring for the person both physically, I mean everybody worries about the liver but lots of the harms actually occur through alcohol use are, are related to excessive cancers, uh, heart disease and, and trauma. Uh, uh, I was just reading that uh, something uh, close to 160,000 emergency presentations a year occur related to the use of alcohol mm. in particular, and it's estimated something uh, uh, five and a half thousand deaths a year occur, mm. and, and many of those are due to injuries, cancers, and mm. heart disease. Mm. Um, I guess that uh, a lot of the people I, I deal with who are very dependent. Um, they they are needing treatment but mm. a lot of the harm that actually occurs in the community related to alcohol is uh, not people who are necessarily physically dependent but it's people who are drinking at risky levels and and over the years the amount of alcohol that's considered to be low risk has 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 come down and, and down and down and, and now the recommendations are uh, no more than two standard drinks a day for no more than two to three days a week um, and drinking beyond that level is is putting us at risk mm. uh, potentially of, of long-term health aspects or, or even short-term mm. um, harm through to falls or motor vehicle accidents and things like that mm. domestic violence yeah I'd always thought that one of the strongest behavioral predictors of any addiction would, would is, is access so if you've got alcohol you know, within an arm's reach, you're more likely to use it compared to if you clear your house out and you actually have to go down to the bottle shop to get a bottle. In the real world, how does that play out? Um, Well, certainly access to alcohol uh, and uh, there have been uh, the lockout laws, for example, up in Sydney Mm -hmm. where they've uh, stopped people accessing uh, pubs and nightclubs after, I think, 3 o'clock in the morning. that has been very controversial and lots of people don't like that. Um, however, if you speak to the emergency physicians working uh, in the local EDs, they, re- they report seeing something like a third reduction in violent incidents um, related to that. So they have been very supportive of that. Uh, certainly cost, the cheaper something is, the more likely we are consuming it. I think culture as well. I mean. Mm. Uh, certainly, when I was in Australia, binge drinking is seen as that's what you do. You mm. go out and you get as hammered as you can as quickly as you can, and that's a good night out. Mm. Uh, and that leads to lots and lots of issues, particularly in terms of the uh, the short-term trauma effects, or or possibly even acute poisoning of alcohol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah look, um, having you know, you asked me before about doing this for a couple of decades, and look, even though my focus has been on intervention. 
I think the the biggest um, impact that we can have uh, is increasing price, which of course is not very popular, <laughs> and reducing availability. Yeah. And and um, Peter Miller, who was actually one of the people responsible for why we do have these, um, uh, I shouldn't say this in case he gets contact lockout laws because of his research on nighttime violence has been one of the biggest sort of uh, studies across the world, really, with sort of interviewing over, I don't know, he'll correct me here, 1,500 people in the middle of the night sure. um, who uh, were you know, using drugs, alcohol, etc. And, um, yeah, if you reduce availability, um, you uh, make alcohol less, you know, you have less bottle shops. Same with gambling. You know, we have mm-hmm. one of the highest number of um, poker machines per capita in the world. And we used to have one of the lowest, mm. and it's occurred just in a, sort of a bit of a over a decade. Mm. So as soon as you reduce availability, um, you, you know you'd reduce mm. the harms. Uh, certainly, in terms mm. of the gambling as well. I mean, you, if you watch sport, I, I myself follow the A League, and you are, are just flooded with yep. adverts mm. for yep. online gambling. Mm. Uh, whereas now, tobacco smoke, uh, tobacco advertising mm. yeah. and alcohol advertising are, are severely curtailed. Um, Petra, with your app, are you doing research at the back end? Are you seeing yeah. what people are doing to replace their alcohol consumption? Yes. So, and what are you finding preliminarily? Um, so one of the things that... So we're in the middle of a trial, so we're yep. doing a randomised control trial so that um, half of the people initially um, are, are put on a wait list and then the other half are um, do the, the app and then you... Um, everyone who's on the waitlist does eventually get the app as well. So are you randomised to waitlist or is just everybody that goes on it will go on a waitlist straight away? No, everyone every, it's 50-50 so half go onto the waitlist, half go okay. onto the into, into the intervention right. and then you know it's just that the waitlist people eventually do get the mm. interventions. So there's a more ethical sort of way of, of, right, yeah. of running it. So we haven't um, looked at the data in any uh, a great sort of capacity. We have got lots of uh, positive feedback about people finding um, particularly what we call these these strategies. I didn't go into a lot of detail because I didn't want to ramble on and bore you all and so that you'd all fall asleep given it's Sunday morning. <laughs> and um, and so, but if-then planning is um, probably mm-hmm. out of a behaviour change intervention is one of the most effective. Sorry, if-then planning. Yeah, so it it's a really neat little sort of strategy which um, basically is around prospective memory so it means that if you're in a situation that is like a trigger for a particular behavior so i was talking about the five o'clock um fridge thing not that that ever that's a memory for me or a trigger (laughs) for me I, i would hate to have anyone come away thinking that but um so if you have a, a automatic strategy that then allows you um, that then you repeat over and over again, I know it sounds a bit like yeah. we're all rats, but it actually doesn't really work. <laughs> so <laughs> if you say, um, you know, if you if I walk in, if I feel like having a drink, it's five o'clock, and I think, you know, and I I made myself a little strategy, then mm. I will um, pour myself a, a soda instead. Mm. And if you repeat it, and that's what the app does, mm. it, it has all these little fancy gamification things mm. that we developed that allows you just to sort of practice these mm. this strategy. And um, you can choose all sorts of different ones. So I guess it's really about choose. I actually forgot the question. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> what are some of the strategies? Yeah, strategies. Okay. <laughs> you're yes. you're so still on topic. If, if then planning <laughs> is. Um, I guess my point is that. Um, in the review that I did, I really noticed two things, okay? Yeah. One is that some of the apps were really simple. They were like Fitbits, uh, yeah? Mm-hmm. The other thing I noticed is that some of them were so complicated yeah. that I actually couldn't follow them. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm reasonably bright, not always, but most of the time. And yet they were so complicated and they had all these different components and you were flipping across to different things. So what what I think we need moving forward is we need psychological strategies that we can deliver in e-therapy but in a straightforward manner. So when we're talking e-therapy, we're talking about therapy over the uh, the internet or on, on your phone or on a computer. Um, I guess you're also talking about offering people a smorgasbord of different things and you kind of select what works best for you in terms of the replacing type things. And also, I guess what you're talking about is being aware of your triggers. Yes. The five o'clock trigger. Like, I know my trigger very yep. clearly is if I see somebody in a TV or movie having a drink, mm-hmm. I, I really feel like a drink. Mm. So I know that's, mm, a, that's very common. A, a, yep. a trigger for me. Mm. Um, so 
Okay, so you're offering people a smorgasbord. Pat, you know, in the, uh, you're seeing a clinical population. Obviously, that's going to be different mm. to the, um, the people that will be accessing the app. Yep. What sort of strategies tend to work broadly for those for that clinical population? Well, I guess um, working with people who've, who've had difficulties with their substance use, I uh, guess the uh, first part of the work is, is really trying to enhance a person's motivation, yeah, trying yeah. to talk to them about in, in what way is their substance use negatively impacting on their lives, both in terms of their physical health, their psychological health, their relationships, their work, yeah. whatever that might be, and, and trying to support them into moving into to stages. Uh, if somebody's severely alcohol dependent, stopping drinking immediately can be very, very harmful and yeah. dangerous, yeah. Um, and that's not what's recommended, and they obviously need professional help and may need support with detoxification either be that at home or maybe even going into a residential support yeah. service for a period of time for detoxification um, and I, then I guess after detoxification a uh, person needs support in terms of maintaining abstinence because that can be incredibly difficult mm. and many many people find that they experience mm. one or several relapses uh, and that support may be in terms of medication it may be also in terms of support with finding coping strategies engaging in some ongoing support be it individual counseling group counseling mm -hmm. going along to Alcoholics Anonymous mm -hmm. or one mm -hmm. of the other um, peer-driven support mm -hmm. groups that are out there mm -hmm. which can be extremely helpful mm. um, is there a service called Direct Line? Do you know much about that? Uh, yep, Direct Line is a, uh, a service um, that uh, people can contact. Both people can contact for themselves or for family and friends, and they can provide um, over the phone counselling or, or put people in touch with local clinical services or support services. Uh, their number is 1800 236 or that you can Google or... You knew that off the top of your head, didn't you? I so did, I did. <laughs> so that's direct Because I remembered it three seconds ago. <laughs> <laughs> that's direct line, so if you want some help uh, or to talk about a family member or a friend, you call direct line. Um, Googling it is, is probably um, the, the fastest uh, way to get hold of it. Uh, Petra, time remaining... Uh, you want to tell me something else? Yes, I just wanted to, if people want, on in terms of access and information, so so if people want to uh, get onto the trial and um, Ooh, yes. see what uh, they think of Replace It, it's um, they go onto the website, alcoholapp.org.au, so it's alcoholapp.org.au, and then um, there's a set of instructions around, um, you know, uh, screening, and then away you go. The program is uh, eight weeks long. Could they just look up replace it alcohol? But that fun, I'm just trying to find because, easy ways to get Because to you can't just download it because you need a user ID because ah, it's part of a trial. It's right. best to go onto the website and then you... Um, so you go onto the website, you fill out some screening information and then you get a link that you can you then use your user ID to download. It's uh, an iOS, so app... Um, sorry, iPhone or Android, but it is best to go on the website, otherwise um, you won't have a user ID if you just gotcha. download it directly. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so mm. much for coming in. That's Petra Steiger from Deakin University and Dr Patrick Tollan from a big hospital next to a park and a helipad. Three, triple, Again, you're in the studio with Dr Mel, practice nurse, EpiPen, Dr Patrick Tollan, uh, Dr. G spot, and we are welcoming Liz Clancy. Liz, you're, uh, tell us about yourself. So I'm a psychologist and a research fellow at Deakin University with an interest in positive adjustment in emerging adulthood with a whole lot of factors in that, but particularly this morning talking about sexting. So why do we do that? Positive emerging into adulthood? Positive adjustment, adjustment yeah. in emerging adulthood. So what is it that helps people adjust positively in that transition from adolescence through to adulthood? So it's sort of 18 to 25 window. See, my, my head is going all towards what got you into that area? How did you... So what, what shaped your life to make you want to do this? But I won't ask you that now because... Okay, we'll come back to that. Because we've actually got to talk to you about the topic you came into. Sexting. I read the research. Yeah. 
amazing. Tell us about what you found. So the really interesting thing, sexting's been this topic that people have kind of gone, oh, that's sexy or interesting. And there's been lots of research, particularly looking at sexting generally and whether people are receiving or sending sexts, which is kind of becoming increasingly normal, particularly in young adults. So what we're finding with general rates, even five years ago when we did a systematic review, it was around about 50% or so of young adults had received or sent something. By now, the because the, we run this research every year, annually we've been repeating it, by now we're at just under 90% of young adults mm. have received a sext, almost 80% have sent an image to somebody else. Just, it, what is a sext? Oh, sorry. What classifies a sext? So there are various definitions around. In our research, we've really focused on image-based sext. So it's a sex generally is either a message or an image of sexually explicit material that you can send by phone or by various messenger apps. So a bosom, a could penis. Be a dick yeah. pic, could be breasts, could be anything that you wouldn't normally consider with the email you'd send to your grandma. <laughs> so that could be a very I don't know about your grandma. <laughs> what a great definition. It's a sex is something you wouldn't send to your grandma. <laughs> Um, Probably. Yes. Unless she's on a dating app. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I'm just picturing my grandmother. All of it. I'm thinking about that. Um, I, I'm, I'm stupefied. 80% of, of young adults have, have received. Sent. Have well, sent. 90% have sent, have received. Sorry, 80% have sent. And more girls than boys. So I, I missed that in the research. More, more girls than it's, boys. It's slightly higher. Girls are more likely to have both sent and received mm. images than boys. So boy, our sample is largely heterosexual yeah. um, and cisgendered, but largely uh, what the information we get is, whilst it's fairly similar, it's a bit more common for girls to have both received mm. and sent. Where did you get your sample from? So these were, it was a convenient sample, sort of Facebook recruitment, et cetera, through university students that we right. got involved mm -hmm. in our research group uh, through all of their networks. And then we also had some uh, through various online kind of uh, different groups. And you asked them, did you, you, it was a sort of, you didn't see the sex, you just asked them, have you sent or yeah. received us? Yeah, no, we didn't ask them to send them to us. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a whole nother one. I love the university ethics for that one. Yeah. Oh, God, can you imagine? <laughs> um, I'm, maybe I'm just totally the wrong generation, but in the situation <laughs> where you're trying to woo a potential suitor, has anybody ever said, after seeing a picture of your penis, I've really decided you're the guy for me? <laughs> You know, we haven't actually asked the outcome of it, but I, I have to agree, and I'm probably the same generation, it's it's not something that I think necessarily would have worked for me, but in the the young adults that we have and the, the adolescents that work on our research study kind of go, yep, get them all the time. And yeah, so yeah. My, I have kids who are 12 and nearly 15 and older siblings of their friends, whatever, yep. All the time, they're just getting stuff. They're being requested to send yeah. images. It's, the dick pic is almost the hello, how are you? It, it li literally has become that. Yeah. So I went to a comedy festival show Shot. last year, and there, uh, I think it was Creasy, and he said, "Put your hands up, who's sent or received a sex text?" Sex text, and uh, ninety percent of the audience, and I was flabbergasted. Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm also in shock. Yeah. I really can't. 90%. Yeah. So it's so normative now that it's actually kind of tricky um, in our research because mm. so many people have done it that it's hard to actually work out, well, okay, this has become, it's become just an electronic part of the relationship context. Yeah. Is it like, is it legal? I mean, are you allowed to do it? Well, it's an interesting question because it differs in different states. In, mm. It's a state-based legislation. So in Victoria, to send sexts consentingly and to receive them between adults or be, or in that sort of 16 to 18 yeah. within two years yeah, yeah. Mm. mess of the whole legal consent picture, that's fine. To on-forward them, to disseminate them to other people is illegal. Because you don't have the consent of the person that exactly. sent it. Exactly. Yeah. And so this oh. was what part of our research was looking at. So we looked at, okay, you've received them, you've sent them, but how many have actually then on forwarded to other people? Mm. And one in five, 20%, are disseminating the sex they receive Ooh. to other people. And this is where it gets really messy. So if, if you, um, seriously, if you send on a, um, a, a sext, it's non-identifiable. I mean... Well, depends. Yeah. Sometimes they're just a dick pic. It depends on yeah. how broad the image is. Where oh, is right. it cropped? 
Right. And if you send it with, this is a photo I got from... From Joe Bloggs or, yeah. Yeah. Wow, man. Yeah. So, um, how interesting. So, what else, I mean, what else... Motive. I mean, what motivates people to do that? And and that's the really interesting yeah. thing. So our study was actually it's the world's first empirical study that's asked the motivations about right. disseminating, which is why we're kind of excited about it. And a lot of people use the term, and you would have heard revenge porn. Yeah. It's used a lot in this space. But what we found is revenge porn is really only a small set of why people are on forwarding sexts. It's maybe sort of 10%, 5%, 10% of kind of the numbers so out of our study, we had about 500, just over 500, 100 of them admitted to having disseminated. Of those, only about 10 said it was re- it was revenge motivated. Most of the rest of them are saying it's either it's funny or it's just not a big deal mm. to send it to other people. Dinkum. Wow. Yeah. So to send the dick pic you got to somebody yeah. else... I've definitely heard, you know, this is the strange-looking dick. What do you think? And passing it on. Well, cause, <laughs> it just it looks a bit quirky. Yeah, but you do research in the area. I do. I do. You might be, but, but what our research is... What do you think of this one? That's a normal experience. Particularly so... And the other thing is that in some cases those motivations differ by gender. And in particular, so the girl's more likely to endorse things like it was funny... Right. So, oh my God, can you believe this got sent to me? Right. Kind of thing, which I can, I can understand. Yeah. yeah. In terms of, if I think back back in the dim dark mists of time when I was dating, you know, oh my God, I can't believe he said that to me as a pickup line. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Electronically, <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe he sent that to me as a pickup line. So the girls are forwarding because they think it's funny or they just don't think it's a big deal. Boys are nine times more likely to say they did it for social status. Mm. Yeah, the silence is my jaw dropping. <laughs> really? So yeah. it's kind of like it's like. So you... girls, about five percent of the girls said, "Yep, that was motivation to look cool, social yeah, status kind of yeah. thing." Forty-five percent of the boys admitted they were sending it to other people, basically as an electronic notch on the bedhead. Yeah. Look what I scored. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm just reading this book. Uh, won't bore listeners <laughs> too much, but it's a great book. It's called the the the, the Feather Thief, and it's about. Um, uh, people collecting uh, animals in the 1800s, and so much of the the, the beautiful plumage of, of animals are from males who mm. were trying to sexually attract attract women, uh, women, the uh, f- females <laughs> for sex. Yeah, and it's trying like, to get a hot bird. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> nice and this seems like I mean, this is kind of like showing like you know people showing the genitalia as a way of. Uh, well, well, in this case, so. We think that might be why the boys send the right. dick peek in the first place. Whether or not that's going to be successful is a whole other question, <laughs> as you are. But this is where they're forwarding pictures that they've received. So the the so revenge yeah. porn talks about I got a photo from my girlfriend and I'm sending it to oh, other right, people. Right, right. So oh, it's right, third right, party. Right, right, right. So it's showing my mates, showing people in our social circle the explicit picture I got sent. So, I mean, have you asked the... I guess you, you are looking at um, predominantly a heterosexual sample, but are, are you asking the women in that sample if they got sent a, uh, a dick pic, whether they are more likely to go out with that guy or...? We haven't yet, and that's an area we wanted... So we've sort of been stepping into this space more. Yeah, sure, when sure. we started this research, <coughs> so my colleague Bianca Kletka, and mm. I, she's she started working on this about six, seven years ago, mm. and as we've expanded looking at this, we started with just the sexting, the receiving and sending. Mm. The dissemination has been this area, and generally the non-consensual aspects of it are what we find really interesting mm. because what we found is that even with receiving... So receiving is a fairly... Well, it's a passive behaviour. Mm. You've just got sent something on your phone. You can look up and go, mm, great, that's mm. fabulous. Uh, but even receiving for boys, in, more so than girls, has a negative mental health impact. So their rates of stress, depression are higher when they've been receiving things they didn't want to see. Mm. Yes. Really? For, for yeah. girls, when they're receiving, but also when they're... Excuse me. <clears throat> when they're sending something but they didn't want to, so they feel coerced or forced yeah. to send something, it was, mm. well, I won't go out with you or... And there's been situations in schools where invitations to parties are contingent on having sent... It's basically this is the entry card to mm. have sent a picture of yourself. I, so, I, again, I'm stunned. I, I didn't know... Your jaw um, keeps dropping. <laughs> no, it does. And I've got kids the same age as, as your kids. And I, I'm going to come back after Penn asks his questions. We're going to um, come back after 
some sponsorship announcements to ask you what as parents we do but first pen you had a oh, question so mine is how explicit are they like do, yeah, do we question. get to vaginas and or is it really a bit more harmless bosoms we, and dicks we haven't asked the question yet about exactly what's in there but i think it's really interesting to to know what we are increasingly asking in our samples going forward is what's the gender what and what relationship do you have with the person who sent you the sixth. I'm fascinated, Pen, why you think one is more or less harmless than the other. I, but I, I think it's more intimate. I think um, a vulva, and I should have said vulva, not vagina. But is is it, are we getting that, you know, relaxed about what we picture to oh. take photos of? Yeah, I suppose I think more bosoms and penises are a little bit more light, uh, lighter in. But if you're, you know, showing um, female anatomy, but mind you. Vaginas and vulvas are, you know, every day part of comedy festivals mm. and art installations. And art installations. <laughs> yeah. Yes, in fact. Yeah, exactly. Yes. If you go to um, Mona, Mona, that's right. There's yeah. the wall in Hobart. In mm-hmm. Hobart, um, it is ten fifty-two and thirty-five seconds. You are listening to Radio Therapy. We're going to play some sponsorship announcements and come back with. Are you Dr. Clancy or not yet? Soon, working on it. Soon to be Dr. Clancy to talk to us about what parents might think about if their kids get a tech, a sext or send a sext. But first, have a listen to these. Find Italy in South Yarra at the Italian Cultural Institute. Enjoy learning one of the most musical languages at a comfortable pace. Standard Italian and culture courses led by qualified Italian native speaking teachers in a buzzy Italian domain. Courses are starting now. For more info and to enrol, head to iicmelbourne.estiri.it. Istituto Italiano di Cultura, the official cultural office of the Italian government sponsoring Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. That is right. I, look, the universe is synchronising because I am trying to learn Italian and that uh, second last sponsorship announcement was about uh, learning Italian. How, how about that? Prego. Okay, we are back, <laughs> we are back talking about sexting. Hey, Liz, what do, I mean, as I said before, our kids are the same age. I've got teenagers. What do I do if they get a sext or receive a sext? How do I talk to them about it? I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, in terms of what they're getting... The reality is they are going to be receiving them. So in as much as as parents we have to have conversations with our kids about the whole gamut of sexual behaviours, this is part of it. They're going to be getting things, okay, how do you feel about it, when do you get it, how do you feel about sending something, what's your consent in terms of if somebody asks you Mm. to send something, Mm. how do you feel about that, Mm. how are you going to negotiate that? Mm. So I think it's really important to be equipping our kids as they come into sexual activity to see this as part of the realm of the conversation we need to have. Um, I and, I'm, yeah, and I'm a big fan of having that around consent and what do you want to put mm. out there yeah, about yourself. Yeah, and starting the conversation, at least just starting the conversation. You might not have the answers, but just start the conversation. Yeah. Um, I would presume that there'd be education in schools about this. To an extent, and depends on the culture of the school yeah. and how nervous they are about it. Honestly, we've tried to do some research oh. with a colleague of ours around this space and some schools are just like, no, don't want to even talk yeah, about it. Yeah. And we, we have the mechanics conversation. This is way past yeah. where we want to get yeah, to. the actual right. culture of sex is neglected, isn't it? Definitely. And, and maybe experts need to come in and help it. It's a discussion yeah, like schools. Liz. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're trying to do that and we're trying to, as I said, really trying to position that as part of conversation about consent and what you get involved in. Right. What do you see the future five years from now? It won't be sexting, it'll be something else. What do you think it'll be? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I, I've got it. Uh, pictures yeah. of your robots. <laughs> <laughs> no, my robot my, went and made me a cup robot. of tea. <laughs> my sexy robot. There are sex robots. Oh, yes. I can see that happening. <laughs> I haven't even thought about that. I mean, I think... Yeah, and, and in terms of... One, one of the things, and it ties perhaps into what you've been talking about, not so much with the, the um, penile enlargements, but the pressure then on having the perfect-looking oh, body yeah, parts yeah, yeah. is another piece yeah. that... Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole <laughs> other piece around body image and how if there's the pressure to send these images, 
what's the acceptable range of what they're going to look like. Mm. Mm. And how do you even begin to measure that as a, as a researcher? What do you, I mean, what, how do you get into that headspace? Yeah. So this, this is starting to look into what's your sense of your body image um, yeah. at a global level. And then we've done some preliminary research and we're kind of investigating this a bit more. So I mentioned my colleague Bianca is doing some work in this space in terms of real-time research around body image and body satisfaction and sexting, so how people feel about sending images and at the same time how they're feeling about their body. So it's an interesting area to think yeah. about what, what implications that has. And we know that adolescents, you know, brains are still developing and so forth and that... Um, impulse Not just adolescents, all the way through to 25. Yep, well, mm. yep. And, uh, um, you know, impulse control is, is a big part of that. Of, it's you the know, last part that develops. Yeah, 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 um, which can have dire consequences. So, you know, I, what, there's this thing on my email where I can, you know, if I push send, it gives me 30 seconds to say, no, don't send that. <laughs> Get it back. <laughs> no, putting that on a teenager's yeah. any explicit message, do you actually want to yeah. send this? Or it just holds on to it for 10 seconds yeah. or something so you can say no. Uh, and I guess as well, the effects of drugs and alcohol when you are um, yeah. drunk yeah. and wanting yeah. to um, mm. send off a pic, I mean... You know, I think lots of us have sent yeah. off a tweet or a Facebook posting that we thought, oh, that wasn't yeah, a good idea. To ex-partners when drunk. drunk but they should be blocked yes. out of your phone, I think, if you've drunk a certain amount. So an alcohol interlock on your phone. So you, that whole idea that you can't send the sext after, or, well, any message after you know, 10 p.m. or after a certain blood alcohol level. Mm. You know, I can turn your phone off if you're going to have a couple of drinks. And, you know, as long as it's in a safe situation, that way, you know, you have to turn it on, wait for it to reboot before you send those messages. Yeah. Did you ask, very quickly, um, Liz, did you ask people um, whether they were inebriated or not or what situation they were in when they sent their sex? So this is part of what we're looking at. Yeah. Yep. And, and also another question is what age are kids starting to do this because yeah. that uh, enters into the whole yeah. issue around yeah. uh, child child porn yeah yeah, yeah. so 14 15 year olds are yeah. sending sex mm. yeah. so it's basically it's becoming if you look at sort of peak ages of when people are becoming sexually active this is part of the yeah. currency of all of that yeah so yeah, 13, 14, 15, 16. And the use of drugs or alcohol as part of that whole thing? It is certainly associated with it. So people are probably more... Our study hasn't... This study hasn't specifically looked at that, but it's part of the picture of impulsive behaviours and and particularly those where they're coerced into sending things mm. or they're sending things that they don't feel comfortable with. Yeah. That is more problematic. And obviously that has both personal and social consequences and also legal consequences. Yeah. That's an illegal behaviour in Victoria. Yeah. Liz, fascinating research. Again, we could spend hours talking about that. We should have a day-long radiotherapy show where we would just, like, just keep going and keep going and keep going. Um, we will definitely get you back if you... Yeah, I'd love to. That'd be terrific and we'll talk more about the research and also what got you into it in the first place. This has been radiotherapy. This has been Dr Mal. I wish I could say that in Italian sotto. Oh, I can't do it. <laughs> uh, we've been joined by the lovely nurse Epi Penn. Lovely, thank the you. The lovely Dr. Patrick Tolan. <laughs> so he speaks it better than me, he's had no listen. And the lovely uh, Dr. G. Spot. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.